Monkeys never dead, dealer. The monkey never dies. Can you kick him off? He just hides in a corner waiting his turn. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 25, The Lab. Um, all right, well, you're the host. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm not the host. So what do I start with? I thought you were going to ask me. This isn't riffing, man. You can tell me where we yeah. are and what we're doing. All right. Um, we're sitting here in the park, COVID safe, uh, East Vancouver, and um, we're talking about the brain disease model of addiction this month. Do you remember, maybe not the first time, but one one of like the early moments in your life where somebody would have told you that what you have is a disease. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think there's a couple places. There's like the the first NA meeting I went to was a long, long time ago, but that's where they first said, um, you know, uh, you know, even that first step, like um, having, or I can't, I can't, I can't remember it properly. Should I look it up? Yeah, let's look it up. Okay. It's like they read these things to you, you know, and... Um, so we admitted that we're powerless against our addiction and that our lives have become unmanageable. And, and the way people talked about it is that we're powerless against our disease. And so that's the first time I kind of remember people saying disease. And what I thought at the time was, fuck, how do I shake these people off and go use dope right now? Like, that's the first thing I thought. So you, so you heard about that at, at, in, like, in a 12-step meeting, but you also later would hear about that in like medical settings, right? So tell me about that. Yeah, um, you know, a, f- a few years later after that, uh, I finally had gotten myself onto like a proper methadone program and there was an intake for it. You know, when you had to, uh, you know, do the piss test and they ask you a bunch of questions and they explain the program to you. And the doctor was explaining to me that I had a chronic relapsing condition. And I, I really remember those words because this was like a doctor in, an, in the medical office sitting on one of those little stools, you know, like doctor stool. And she had her clipboard and, and looking at me over her reading glasses and was saying, yeah, this is a chronic relapsing condition. Those words were just like echoing on a loop after I walked out of the office, like chronic and relapsing. Like my initial thought was, oh, this is, this is really for life. Ah, oh, fucked for life. That's what they're telling me. You know, it's, it's like there was a moment of also relief like oh so i'm not the um moral defective that they told me i was at na i just have a medical disease but you know when there was like talk of brain receptors and and descriptions of you know the the adjectives that they put on there i sort of also felt like i was hearing this um greek idea ancient greek idea of how the brain worked like it's a balance of humors and stuff like that it seemed strangely abstract to me so i was always left with a shadow of doubt like is this a real disease or do they mean this kind of like 
when they don't quite know, and so they gather up a whole bunch of symptoms and call it a disorder or call it a syndrome or something. So what do you know about the history of this idea, the chronic relapsing brain disease idea, where it came from? It seems like a relatively new thing that came in the 90s, you know, to replace the you're a criminal, moral, defective kind of person model. Yeah. What do you want to know about it? Well, is it, I mean, is it real? Like, who thought of this and why? And how did we get here? You know, like, everything that we find out about the drug war has this wild hidden history. So let's go find that out. Let's go to, like, the labs or whatever, you know, in the during the Cold War and see what they were doing. So I'm always interested in the, the gray, um, gray markets, gray areas, um, in part because um, they don't allow you to make very simple distinctions between what's good, what's bad, good drugs for good people and bad drugs for bad people. That antinomy, you know, it still runs my life in a lot of ways. I'm Nancy Campbell, and I'm a historian of drugs and drug policy at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. I wanted to talk to Professor Nancy Campbell about the history of this idea, how we came to think of drugs as a chronic relapsing disease in the first place. This is a story that Nancy told in her 2007 book, Discovering Addiction. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. America's drug war gets going in the 1920s. At that time, addiction is considered a kind of academic backwater by most doctors and scientists. There are some weird Freudian people writing about it, and there's some scattered experiments conducted by doctors. But this is all pretty disorganized. However, at the exact same time, newspaper writers, politicians, and the general public seem really worried about drugs. I mean, this, this country was the world's most voracious consumer of opium uh, in the form of morphine. Uh, it was called the opium problem in the 1920s. So a lot of what is going on at that time is that most people think of addiction as a moral weakness, as a disease of the will. And along come these scientists and physicians and researchers, small band of them, and they say, wait a second, let's use the power of science to study this because we don't think it's a matter of morality. We don't think it's a matter of criminality. We think that this is a, um, you know, it's a, it's a medical problem. It's a public health problem, and we should attack it in that way. This new generation of researchers think they can come up with a different way to deal with drug users, something more humane. But to do that, they first need to understand what addiction actually is. Why do some people get wired and not others? Why can't some people kick? Why are some drugs more addictive than others? At first, these academics are hopeful they can find the root cause of addiction and maybe even a cure. Conquest. The search for new knowledge about our universe, our world, and ourselves. 
Um, there was a guy named Maurice or Mo Sievers. Uh, so, so he was interested in all those kinds of questions, but he had to build a laboratory in order to ask them. And they couldn't figure out how exactly to study it in humans quite yet. And so they tried to figure out what is addiction by looking at non-human primates. More than most animals, the rhesus monkey is like a human infant. At birth, this little fellow has the brain and the nervous system of a five-month-old human baby. So they created what um, would ultimately be called the, a morphine-dependent monkey colony. I called them the junkie monkeys of Michigan. Uh, largely, they were rhesus macaques, and they came from an island off the coast of Puerto Rico. And they just got them used to being in the laboratory. This was a time when there were really no ethical standards for animal testing. And Mo Sievers and his laboratory assistants treated these monkeys pretty bad. If you don't want to hear about this kind of thing, skip ahead for five minutes. The whole idea of this paradigm, this animal research paradigm, is uh, you set it up so that the monkeys essentially get physiologically addicted uh, to morphine. So like they got monkeys wired. They, they did. And did, like, did the monkeys like it? Like, did they want to get? No. <laughs> did the monkeys like dope? No, the monkeys did not really like dope. So the way you get monkeys to like dope is uh, by, of course, administering high doses of morphine at frequent intervals, right? So they had to invent um, ways to inject the monkeys with drugs very quickly. Well, so they had to build a, a monkey fixer. They did, and so they had to kind of drag around something that kind of looked like uh, the cro a cross between a, a syringe and a catheter that was kind of fixed to the monkey. And it actually took them decades, decades, to figure out how to get them to like it. But they were, by 1947 or so, able to do it. Eventually, the researchers came up with the right apparatus and a system of rewards and punishments. They wore the monkeys down. Just like with people, no one wants to fuck up their life. But there's a limit. And when things get bad enough, dope starts to look pretty good. Nancy tells me that she learned more about this when she first visited Seaver's lab. Seaver's himself was long gone, but there was still a monkey colony there. There was a safe in the lab where they kept the morphine, of course, uh, but where they also kept some reel-to-reel -reel films. And so I asked whether it would be possible to get the reel-to-reel -reel films converted to uh, something that we could view in 2006 or so. And so I actually saw those films sitting around a conference table inside the conference room in the lab with the researchers. And of course, the researchers hadn't really viewed the films either. Can you describe uh, one of those monkey movies? Sure. So uh, the movies were shot by home movie cameras, um, various kinds of cameras that the researchers themselves possessed. And so uh, those films are probably the most graphic depictions of what it looks like to um, get high, experience euphoria, 
uh, if you're a monkey. What, do, what does it look like? Well, it looks a little bit like falling asleep. I mean, they're definitely on the nod. You can see them um, kind of, uh, it's almost like they glaze over and they just kind of, you know, pleasantly coexist for a while. Withdrawal, of course, is much more florid. And, uh, you know, they're, it, it, it depends, of course, on the size of their habit when they were suddenly... Um, abruptly thrown into withdrawal. Well, what does a dope sick monkey look like? Yeah, they they look like they're in agony. Since I know Garth that you have been in withdrawal, you can probably imagine the different levels of physiological and neurophysiological just discomfort, right? That mm-hmm. these um, that these animals are in. Mm-hmm. All right, monkey movies. Opioid Addiction in the Monkey, Department of Pharmacology, University of Wisconsin. Codeine phosphate, 40 milligrams per kilogram daily, it says. 12 months addiction, reaction essentially normal. 22 hours withdrawal. Sad monkey in a box. Granny black and white. Here at 46 hours. Now he's kind of looking a little mad. Like a little irritated, you know. Shifting around. Yeah. Jesus, I know that feeling. <laughs> Fucking can't, can't get comfortable no matter what you do. You're just kind of like twitchy. Yeah, he's really twitchy. Really sort of... Fuck, he just looks rough. You know, he's lying on the floor and his tail is just like vibrating. 72 hours. No opposition to handling. He's just lying there. Fuck, I have felt like that monkey gets picked up by the scruff and put down uh, kind of handling them rough you know Jesus there's no call for that it's like cops when you're dope sick yeah, this is really it's kind of hard to watch you know like fucking endless series of dope sick monkeys at least the monkeys put up a bit of a fight it, uh, monkeys are not really very uh, pleasant animals they spit uh, they can bite and in fact, there are stories about uh, Mo Seavers g- getting bitten. Oh, I- I'd fucking bite that guy too. <laughs> yes, he had that skull on his desk, uh, f- you know, for the rest of his career. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, Mo Sievers gets this colony of monkeys wired on morphine, and he does all these grim fucking experiments. And he gets the idea that physiological need and psychological desire are separate things. Sievers defined true addiction as the need for continuing drug use in order to avoid what scientists call abstinence syndromes, or dope sickness. But habituation is different, he said. That's the desire to keep using even if there's no dope sickness. I know a little something about this from personal experience. Okay, impolite question time. I think this is stuff that people who don't have uh, an addiction, um, like I think this is stuff they probably think but wouldn't ask because it's impolite. Or at least I th- <laughs> stuff I think. So I'm going to ask it. So when was, So when's the first time you try dope? It's got to be late adolescence, you know, 18, 19, something like that. 
Yeah, you know, I chipped a bit and then started using, and then I didn't, it's not like I didn't know. I knew people, um, you know, I knew you get wired, I know you felt sick, but, you know, I remember waking up in the night and feeling bad, and I'm like, oh, this is what they're talking about. Describe what what happens when you try to stop using opioids. Yeah, I mean, it starts with... uh, just like a sense of you're just not at ease in yourself you feel anxious and kind of nervous and squirrely feels like your nerves are on the outside of your skin and then it kind of gets worse and you're like you throw up everything that's in your stomach and you start dry heaving and then it's coming out of both ends and uh you sort of it just it just keeps accelerating into you're just like 100 percent fucked most of the times you've tried to stop uh, using opioids, do you start using again during that period of like dope sickness? Oh, I've done both. Like I've white knuckled my way all the way through it. And then, you know, about a week later started using again. Um, Tell me about that. What happens on the other side of the dope sickness? Well, you don't feel physically sick anymore, but you just don't, you don't quite feel right, you know, uh, or I didn't. And, um, or you feel like you're, you, you know, you feel like you're on, on solid ground again, but you're right next to a cliff or you're right next to this need to use and you can get nudged into it really easily. Okay, so this is the part, I think, where I'm tempted to just be polite and believe you, but there's a part of me that feels like if you went through the fucking nightmare, you knew, you knew before you went in that you wanted to kick badly enough, you're willing to go through the dope sickness. And then you went through the nightmare and all the sickness and then you start to feel a little bit better, that that would be a moment that you would, you, you would be less likely to want to go score again because you'd be like, hey, I made it, right? I'm out the other side. I, I can start getting better now. But who's there on the other side of the dope sickness? The same fucked up kid that started using heroin all those years ago with the same fucked up problems and the same need to hit that switch and turn those problems off. They're all back. You know, you've been, you've been trying to compartmentalize them or shove them away or just opioid them out of existence. But um, you use heroin to lock them into a little trunk. And then it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark at the very end there. Marion, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Mary, and don't look at it no matter what happens. The Nazis take the lid off the Ark of the Covenant and all the ghosts fly out and melt everyone's faces and all that. Yeah, that, so that's, that's not a symptom of withdrawal. That's just your life after the immediate physical symptoms of withdrawal are over. All the ghosts are free again and tormenting you. Is there an example, like a, like a thought or a memory or something that comes back like that you that you were pushing down with the opioids is there like a sign like oh fuck this is gonna this next part's gonna be hard too that you can remember i mean i just uh i guess when i was a kid when you're a little kid you don't you don't know the world you don't know anything that's fine lived in the north i was kind of a happy little kid some fucked up shit happened to me and i also experienced the world finally as a person who can't see very well and i guess that had the effect of making me really hate myself you know like I just thought I was like an awkward, horrible kind of reptile. And that that salamander of who you think you are just crawls right back onto you with its horrible, slimy feet. But heroin accepts you. It doesn't care about that shit. It doesn't demand things of you. It just opens its arms and welcomes you in. And that horrible salamander ghost boy is no more. But uh, once the heroin's gone, it's back.
So, most Sievers continued with his monkey tests. His lab remained one of the most important sites for addictions research in the country. That is, until addictions researchers found a new population to experiment on. Prisoners. By the late 20s, uh, U.S. prisons were pretty overcrowded with dope addicts. And so they decided we're going to peel them all out of the prisons, the federal prisons, and we're going to send them to two narcotic farms, one in Fort Worth, Texas, and the other one in Lexington, Kentucky. The, um, the complex uh, is on a thousand acres of beautiful rolling hills, bluegrass country, um, a former thoroughbred horse farm. It was both a hospital and a prison. So it was built for people who could voluntarily seek treatment as if it was a hospital. Their doctors could send them there, their family could send them there, they could volunteer. And about a third of the 1,500 or so residents uh, were volunteers. Um, They could leave at any time. So does it feel more like a prison or more like a hospital? Well, you know, that's a really interesting uh, question. I actually think that um, it felt more like an American small town of the 1950s than anything else. It felt a little bit like a campus, like a community college campus or something. It has um, a foot, three football fields inside of it. It was built at a time in the 20s and 30s when um, this idea that you should have more light, you should have gardens. They logged the hours that people spent bowling at the narcotic farm or playing billiards. They made sure that people had very well-rounded lives. They had jobs they went to every day. They had medical appointments. They had psychotherapy. They had good food. I mean, it sounds like paradise, right? Except it's a prison. How was it down there, Frankie? Greatest place you ever see, Nancy. Jimmy's Lexington. I'm telling you. Ball games, great food. I even learned how to play the drums. It's a prison, no? More hospital kind. Let me show you something. Nestled into the corner of the campus was a small laboratory, the Addictions Research Center, or ARC. And, according to Nancy, this building was what really made Lexington special. Can you tell me about the Addiction Research Center at Lexington? Like, have you been there? What's it like? Yeah, well, the Addiction Research Center no longer really exists in Lexington because um, it, it moved in the late 70s, early 80s. The idea, though, this large, you know, congregate care facility, 1,500 beds, um, they, uh, the the research lab, the research ward, is kind of sticking off the side of it. It's very small, but the doctors and researchers, they uh, lived behind the prison buildings, the hospital buildings. Um, They lived in houses that had already been built. They look a little bit like dormitories. And who who were the research subjects who would go there, right? Like you said, of these 1,500 people, some are prisoners, some are voluntary. Who who winds up being a, a guinea pig for the lab over there? Yeah, so the guinea pig um, identity is really interesting. They they were not looking for people who wanted to be cured. They were looking for people who didn't, who said that they were not going to quit, that they were going to go right back 
to using when they left, um, the research subjects lived on a research ward, which means that they took them out of the general population of 1500 and they moved them into a separate uh, area. And they could kind of come and go as they pleased, except they had to subject themselves to whatever human subjects experiments at the narcotic farm. The researchers at the Addiction Research Center wanted to find a non-addictive painkiller, some way to give people relief without getting them wired. Much of that work was led by a guy named Abraham Wickler. Abraham Wickler was the researcher who I would say became the, the intellectual of addiction, right? He's really trying to figure out how this process works. And he was downright disdainful of sociologists and ethnographers uh, or anthropologists. He really did not feel that that was a way to get objective information about this syndrome. And they, they decided, right? So their, their bargain is to say, all right, we're going to go for the physiological. We know that we can do these studies and, um, you know, report the results uh, in the scientific press about these things. We don't, we can't solve um, the social, political, economic um, problems. Right. Yeah. This motion picture concentrates on pharmacology. Participants were volunteers who gave their free informed consent for participation with full knowledge that motion pictures were being made. The ARC became a simulacrum of real life, an antiseptic place where scientists could reproduce what they saw as the natural conditions of drug use, and where they could try to zoom in on the physiological side of addiction. Although this motion picture is old, it shows examples of some of the important pharmacologic effects of several classes of commonly abused drugs. Um, so the first thing they're looking at is detoxification, and they're looking at tolerance, and they're looking at all the things they were looking at in the monkeys. They're looking at what is this neurophysiological profile? How does this really affect people? How do opioids affect um, human beings? By the intravenous route, drug effects are detectable within a few minutes. A facial flush may be seen, and there may be a drop in blood pressure. Opiates usually produce a sedative euphoric state, during which the subject may appear to be intermittently drowsing, referred to as coasting and being on the nod. What I understand from your work is, is we're in a lab and you get like a real dose, like not, not like a medical, nice low level thing, but you get a proper hit and you can really feel it and you can really, you know, can really rock your ass. With these large repeated doses, a toxic syndrome of paranoid delusions and visual, auditory, and tactile hallucinations may occur. In this scene, the subject is chasing a non-existent butterfly through the air and catching it and handing it to the examiner. He then plucks insects from the skin of his arm. This is like um, Abraham Wickler doing these um, experimental re-addiction uh, trials, right? And, and also experimental withdrawal, like getting people... Yeah. Uh, on drugs and then cutting them off and all that, like, uh... Yeah. When the drug is abruptly withdrawn, the signs and symptoms of abstinence occur, as shown in this scene filmed 36 hours after the last injection of morphine. He yawns and is restless, complains of aches and pains, and exhibits fever, goose flesh, 
excessive sweating, hypopnea, and vomiting. The twitching in the legs has given rise to the expression kicking the habit. The researchers at ARC run some of the first methadone trials, and they also test a precursor to naloxone. But it's the research subjects who really sacrifice for these kind of discoveries. Being a research subject at the ARC often meant being detoxed and then re-addicted. It meant being a guinea pig for different kinds of drugs, often with no control over your dose. It frequently meant getting wired and then having your drugs cut off, all so the researchers could see what happened to you when you got dope sick. In rare instances, the researchers even tried electroshock therapy and lobotomy on their subjects. Um, they, they have a, it's an almost salvationist uh, rhetoric that they have about what they're doing as researchers. Uh, they want to guard uh, the public against another heroin. They are very concerned that some pharmaceutical company will put on the market uh, another wonder drug like heroin, and they want to make sure that that doesn't happen. In the early 1940s, the researchers start to realize that their purely physiological approach isn't working. For one thing, the quest to find a non-addictive painkiller was going nowhere. So they realized the limits of their science. We are not able to isolate the analgesia, the pain-killing effect, right, the comfort. We can't really isolate that effect from the other um, aspects of that drug, and we're not going to find, um, you know, a magic bullet. And it wasn't just the chemistry projects that were failing. The ARC researchers noticed that drug treatment at Lexington didn't really work either. They saw a lot of people return. It was a revolving door. Abraham Wickler, he was especially interested in this idea that as people left Lexington, they would go back to New York City, say, in um, on a train or on a bus. And as they got back into their neighborhoods, they would start to go into withdrawal, even though they hadn't used in many months. Wickler, uh, he talked to his research subjects. One of the things that he learned from them was that social cues, or triggers as he called them, were really important in whether or not somebody reinitiated um, an addictive process after they left the institution that he worked for. Was it the sound of that train that made people want to use again? Was it seeing those same old buildings? Well, that's what Wickler thought, but I don't know. I think it's something deeper. I think it's returning to poverty or to racism or to that shitty job. I think it's the return of that same kind of self-hatred and anguish I felt whenever I stopped using opioids. But the idea of triggers gives researchers their theory. There was something broken in the drug user brain. You could treat addiction, but the right trigger could undo it all. At the narcotic farm, they defined addiction as uh, a chronic relapsing disorder. Chronic relapsing disorder. Relapsing disorder.
can't help thinking that this was all some kind of face-saving move. The researchers spent all this time and money studying addiction. They tortured all these people and all these monkeys, but for what? They still didn't understand what addiction actually was. They still didn't have a cure. And their patients just kept getting wired. The whole thing really had been a failure. I think maybe that's why they decided it was our fault. That addiction was something irreparable about us. Because that let the researchers off the hook. Either way, their idea stuck. Denise is a cocaine user. She has volunteered for research at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, where neuroscientists are taking pictures of her brain on drugs. Okay, Denise, now you're going to hear the beep for about two minutes. Just slow, loud beeps. Hold real still. The deeply flawed idea of addiction, developed at the ARC, becomes medical orthodoxy, thanks in part to just a sprinkling of neuroscience. This is a clip from Moyers on Addiction a TV special broadcast in 1998. The host, Bill Moyers, interviews Dr. Steve Hyman, head of the National Institute of Mental Health. We're getting a map of her feelings. We're getting a map of what structures in her brain are active as she reports the feeling of high, as she reports later on after the drug wears off the sense of craving or wanting the drug. Literally, what this allows us to do is get an image of desire in the brain. The Institute of Medicine, the National Academies of Science, they decide, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to recruit really high-status scientists. And so they court neuroscientists. They try to get them to think about uh, using neuroimaging to study addiction. It's expressed in the form of compulsive behavior but it's a brain disease. It's a disease of the brain. Prolonged drug use changes the brain in fundamental and long-lasting ways. And that matters, not because it's interesting, but because it tells you why you can't just cut it out. Just like the researchers before them, these neuroscientists say that their work is progressive and humane, that it's destigmatizing to think of drug users as people with chronic relapsing brain diseases instead of criminals. But just like with the monkey labs at the ARC, their ideas pose no serious challenge to the war on drugs. Politicians start saying that addiction is a health issue, but they don't start closing prisons. The brain disease model of addiction becomes just another way to manage and control us, alongside of all the cops and the judges. So, like, all of us have noticed this, like, like Crackdown's editorial board is mostly middle-aged drug users like me, and we used drugs and sometimes saw methadone doctors or, or whatever through the 90s. So I kind of noticed the this concept coming on board. And we thought, well, this is progressive. Like this is an improvement from just being thought of as a criminal, right? Being thought of someone has a disease instead. Like that seems, that seems better. Mm -hmm. And so our conversations about this are always like uh, in, in, what, in what way of thinking about addiction is less power exerted on us or is the power that it's exerted on us softer you know so we're always having these kind of very strategic discussions like what's less shitty <laughs> but we never really get to the what's actually true mm -hmm. yeah um so uh as a historian of science and medicine um, I do feel like the people I study right they're trying to get 
towards um, a kind of account that will be more compassionate, uh, less stigmatizing. Um, but I don't think that science is going to uh, really come to terms with the kinds of um, political, economic, social uh, structures and conditions, and in particular, mm -hmm. um, the kind of structural violence um, that so many people are subjected to. The the people who are studying this problem scientifically, they 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 have to kind of weed that out. They have to control for that, right? They have to not study that. That's all policy. Right. Yeah. Today, using new methods, researchers can at last start to look at where drugs act in the human brain. In the human brain. The new machine will release drugs. Make us act like the drug. Make us act like the if Nancy's right, if the scientists can't come to terms with politics, then this is a dead end because technocratic medical solutions won't work on their own. Sometimes they even make things worse. I know that lots of doctors and prescribers listen to this show. So today, I'm going to wrap up by talking directly to you. Doc, you need to accept that maybe you don't actually know what addiction is, that you don't know if it's a disease. Maybe you don't know how to treat us, to cure us, to fix us. And you don't know how to stop us from using illegal drugs. But when we come and sit in your office, you still have immense power over us. You decide if we live or die. So we don't just have cops, judges, and correction officers controlling our lives. You do too. And so I'm pleading with you to stop trying to fix us. When we come to your office, don't scheme ways to force us to stop getting high. Right now, during the overdose crisis, there's something more important saving our lives. Until we can organize heroin co-ops without the cops kicking in the door, your prescription pad is the only way we can get access to safer alternatives to street drugs that are killing us. You can stop this. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. This month, we've lost more people than I can name here. My close friend and comrade, Hawkfeather Peterson, lost their son, Edward Biggs, suddenly in late May. Hawkfeather says he was only 22 years old and he hadn't even begun to live life. I've organized with Hawkfeather as part of the BC Yukon Association of Drug War Survivors. Whatever you need, Hawkfeather, we got you.
I'm also heartsick to lose another old friend this month. Janice Warren was a harm reduction worker in Parkdale, Toronto. She had an artist's keen eye and a sailor's foul mouth. Back in the day, she was the singer for this riot girl punk band called Lashback. I remember this one gig where my band played with her band in Edmonton. Janice howled at the audience and they loved it. When we went on, she danced in front of the stage, red hair flying around, smiling at us and yelling, boo. <laughs> Janice was key in organizing a photo installation on the side of the Parkdale Community Health Center. She titled it Harith. That's a Welsh word that means homesickness, but for a home that you can't go back to or a home that never was. I know that Janice felt that for a lot of her life. And fuck me, so did I. Janice fatally OD'd on the day that this exhibit was mounted. Finally, a sad goodbye to Gerald Peachy, who most of us knew as Spike. Spike was a constant fighter for us. In 2018, he ran for city council. He was totally upfront about being a drug user. He made us visible. His campaign slogan was, put a spike through City Hall. He got a very respectable number of votes. I was proud to cast my ballot for him, but it wasn't quite enough. Imagine if he'd won. This is Spike holding a moment of silence at the end of a meeting. If you know anyone, if you're missing anyone, feel free to say their name loud and then join me. Then join me in a moment of silence. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray and Sharice Kiwatton. Today's episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Lisa Hale, Alex Kim, Ryan McNeil, Daniel Fass, and me, Garth Mullins. Original score for today's episode was written and performed by James Ash, Sam Fenn, Kai Paulson, and I. Thanks this month to Steve Pierce for the studio and tape syncing. You can find links to further readings at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. While there, consider giving us a few bucks. It helps out a lot. Thanks for listening. Be safe and keep six. Six.